Hello and welcome to another edition of Communication Mixdown. I'm John Langer. Over the weekend, it was revealed that a coalition of alt-right Facebook groups in Australia were working with Fraser Anning and the United Australia Party and were producing fake news and racist memes targeting voters to cast their ballot against Labour and the Greens. These posts were liked and shared more than one million times during the election campaign. And today it was reported that in the first three months of this year, hate speech posts globally on Facebook increased by 30%, with nearly 10.5 million of these types of posts being removed. By Facebook's own reckoning, there's also been a steep rise in the creation of abusive and fake accounts over the past six months. Our special guest on Communication Mixed Down this week has been keeping a close watch on these kinds of developments. Mark Davis teaches in the School of Culture and Communication at the University of Melbourne. His research looks at the impacts of network digital media on democratic culture. And he's just published an essay entitled Network Hatred, New Technology and the Rise of the Right in the Griffith Review. Good evening, Mark. Oh, good evening. Now, what I've just cited about online hate speech and abuse. None of this would be a surprise to you because you've been doing some research into the far right's online presence in Australia and you found some very specific groups that were being targeted. Who were they? The the, the main target of the Facebook groups that I'm looking at is um, is, is Islamic people, so people of Islamic faith and Muslim background, um, by far the biggest target. Um, You know, that's, that's a... A content analysis of about eight different Facebook groups that I looked at. And uh, you also mentioned a few other groups that were being targeted as well in, in your, in your um, I suppose, looking, looking into this. Yeah. One, one of the interesting things that's happening is that um, with the emergence of the alt-right in particular, the lines between different forms of hate speech have become much blurrier. Um, and just to explain that, it might seem an odd thing to say, but it used to be that white supremacism was kind of separate to men's rights groups, was kind of separate to gay hate groups, was kind of separate to anti-climate science groups. Um, they all used to operate, you know, 10 years ago or so, they always used to operate in separate spheres, more or less. Um, but they've all become mashed together. So you get all those things on these sites. It's predominantly anti-Islamic, but there's lots of anti-women and anti-feminist stuff. There's lots of anti-climate science stuff. There's even anti-vaccination stuff mm. on some of the websites. Mm. Yeah. Without going into the fine detail, what were some of the sorts of things that you were finding in your content analysis, for example, on the environmentalists? So, what you know, the main means of communication, and this is this is part of this development, the main means of communication is actually visual memes. So people people making memes and circulating memes. Um, and it'll be to do with, um, yeah, 
the general thrust of the anti-climate science ones is to, without going into sort of specific memes, is to, to try and undermine any sort of sense that scientists are acting in good faith when they talk about global warming, climate change, or that environmentalists are acting in good faith. So the attack that's made on them, the general attack, is, is the same attack that we hear right across the political spectrum, which is that these people are members of elites and that as members of an elite, they are self-serving and corrupt and not serving the interests of the, the mainstream, of, of the average Australian or the average person in the street, that they're looking after their own interests and that the whole thing's a bit of a scam um, mm. cooked up to, to further their own careers and their own, their own interests or to, you know, push the green agenda uh, onto people um, who, who, you know, for ideological reasons rather than for scientific reasons. Now, is it okay to, to ask you about the uh, the the stuff that was has been produced in terms of Muslims as well? It, it, some general trends that that you discovered. Oh, uh, yeah. Look, the the Muslim, the anti-Muslim stuff really does. You know, you mentioned you you opened up by talking about hate speech and the growth in hate speech. The anti-Muslim stuff really does fit the criteria for hate speech. So, you know, one of the main criteria for hate speech is is that it denigrates someone to the point that um, it, it, they're regarded as unhuman or subhuman and therefore not deserving of any form of compassion or any form of um, other identification, you know, where, you, mm. where any form of um, sympathy or anything goes out the window. So, you know, I mean, without going into too much detail, but you, you commonly you get memes of, um, of, of Muslims who have been injured or hurt or whatever with with you know um, comments around um, oh, around mm, that's mm, great mm, isn't mm, that wonderful mm, look, mm. you know less yes. one less Muslim or whatever yes yes, um, yes. A lo- you know a lot of those names circulated in the wake of Christchurch in particular yes look yeah. this is something also quite significant that you you mention in your essay that you you noticed two trends that were crossing over a whole lot of these posts that you were examining. The first one, and I think this alludes a little bit to what you're talking about, the one you, you describe it, the term you use is pointed incivility. What did you mean by that? So, so in other words, our Western tradition, um, you know, the normal civic culture that we have in most Western countries, up until probably 10 or 15 years ago, the normative condition of public speech was that you show a certain amount of civility and decorum. Now, people didn't always obey that. You know, people got get angry, they get emotional and so on in civic discourse. But usually in normal civic discourse, that anger isn't directed at any particular single group. Um, what you get in the in the Facebook pages I look at, but more generally in hate speech, anti-Islamic and, and anti-feminist hate speech and so on, is people who are using rage as a weapon. So pointed incivility is the kind of incivility that weaponises rage and says that I am very, very angry, I am entitled to fear, feel angry, and these people are the cause of my anger. We need to get rid of these people. So that's kind of the flow chart of the, the logic that is behind most of the communication. And, and um, sorry, yeah, so just a sense to... of entitlement coupled with a sense of um, of um, the 
use of rage as a political and ideological weapon. I was going to say the, the thing that you mentioned was was the use of violence. That 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 was a prominent part of what what the, what was being put together. Yeah. Look, one of the not it hasn't been a trend here in Australia, but obviously with Christchurch, but also in the US, the Southern Poverty Southern Poverty Law Center, and you know, I suggest people go and Google it. Have have been connecting um, murder to to the emergence of the alt right and white supremacist movements more broadly as well for a long time now. So, you know, they've got a whole a whole log and and you know, Charlottesville in 2015 or Alex Manassian in Toronto or you know and various other mass murders as well can all be linked directly back to the back to the um, to the emergence of the alt right and. The willingness of, or the 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 tendency, I suppose is a better word, uh, for people to become radicalised by what they see online and to genuinely believe that there is a massive conspiracy against them, that that they are members of a white race which is in decline, which is a very popular meme, and that the only way to do something about it is to kind of fight back using um, using lethal force in some cases. Mm. Another trend that you, you mentioned two trends. You've talked about the pointed incivility, and the second trend you noted was that Australia, the Australian far right Facebook pages, model themselves very closely on, or at least partly on, the U.S. alt right. And you talk about, and I think you've alluded to this as well. You talk about the old school far right groups, and then there's the new alt right approach. Well, just tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so it's a difference in communication style, um, and one of, and also a difference in organisational base. So the old the old style white supremacist groups would have meetings. They'd be face to face physical meetings, and um, they'd have sometimes meeting rooms and, and regular meeting places. Um, they'd have their various sort of items of paraphernalia and so on, and it would be all face to face with an increasing digital presence. Um, a lot of the newer groups only have the digital presence. So in many cases, they're an artefact of bulletin boards like 4chan, 8chan, um, particular Reddit sites. Um, and the people who are organising um, haven't necessarily met with each other. So, for example, the Charlottesville March in 2017 or 2018, whenever it was, that Richard Spencer organised a, a well-known alt-right white supremacist figure in the US. Um, a lot of the people at that march, it was the first time really that they'd met each other. So it wasn't there was a huge organisational base and they all came together for a march. Actually, it was a virtual network of people that came together for a march. So that's, that's kind of the organisational and structural difference. It's a communicative network rather than an actual um, face-to-face kind of organisational structure. You've also mentioned uh, a little bit earlier just talking about the old school is is specifically white nationalists, but there's a, a mixture now, a blurring of lines between race, gender, sexuality, and a smattering of science issues. And um, what is is that is that the case in Australia as well? Yeah, you're seeing that more and more. It was interesting, you know, the Facebook pages that I've been researching and also the Twitter accounts that I've been researching, the particular hashtags um, that are kind of alt-right hashtags in Australia, um, you'll see that 
on those, a lot of the um, a lot of the people posting see themselves as part of a kind of broad underground community that is linked together by a certain code, a certain language, a certain sort of um, set of symbols. And you know, the the, the Christ Christ Church massacre, um, Brenton Tarrant, his his use of those symbols in his courtroom appearances, for example. So that that all kind of binds it together. It's kind of a communicative network, um, and really, they they believe that there is a conspiracy of the broad left that includes um, that includes social justice warriors and cultural Marxists and you know the other various terms that are used, libtards and so on that are used to describe this broad cultural left who they believe have a dominant form of hegemony and who are active in every area. So whether it be climate change or whether it be feminism or whether it be their promotion of multiculturalism or whether it be their um, their willingness to, um, to, um, to um, invite um, Muslim immigrants to a country, all those things kind of come together under this umbrella idea um, mm. of the broad left. You mentioned Fraser Anning and in the um, in your opening, and he's a good example of someone who uses that kind of discourse. Right. And uh, look, this is might be a good place to take a bit of a break, give you a breath, and uh, we'll come back and talk a bit more about your essay. Yep, sure. In 2019, 3CR has the power. Add your support during the annual Radiothon to Power Radical Radio. Radiothon starts 3rd of June. To donate, call 039419 8377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au. 3CR Radiothon 2019. Power Radical Radio. This is Communication Mixdown, and I'm talking with Mark Davis from the School of Culture and Communication at the University of Melbourne. His research looks at the impacts of network digital media on democratic culture, and he's just published an essay entitled Network Hatred, New Technology and the Rise of the Right in the Griffith Review, number 64. Mark, I wanted to keep going a little bit on this and um, talk more about these online sites, and you've said that Part of the part of what's going on is there is actually a global trend towards what you call, and I like the way you put this very much, the networked industrialization of hatred. What were you getting at here? So, you know, without without sort of going into the deep history of it, very briefly, since the mid nineteen sixties um, in the US, and you know, most most historians of race identify. Um, George Wallace's campaign for the presidency in 1968 as a kind of watershed moment when open race hate returned to politics after a 20 or 30 year hiatus in the wake of World War II. Since then, the use of hatred and the use of rage has become part of a political strategy. Now, it's not just the right doing this, it's sometimes the left as well, but in the case of the right, most analysts say that it's been much more broadly exploited across the right than, than it has been on the left. So the use of um, divisive strategies in order to, 
to make political ground. Um, so you can sort of work your way through the various presidential campaigns in, in the US, but also the various election campaigns here in Australia. Mm. And you can see how the logic of division has played into political campaigning. Um, so the Tampa election of 2001 here is kind of a watershed election in in those terms, but also the, the 1996 election, which saw the emergence of Pauline Hanson as a candidate. And then you, then you kind of move through um, the various um, strategies and then you sort of throw into the mix people like Steve Bannon and so on who have really seen a way to leverage division as a form of electoral power using social media analytics in particular. So you see the Cambridge Analytica scandal you mentioned earlier, uh, Fraser Anning and his term and his team's kind of work targeting people with Facebook ads, um, the or Facebook messages, the um, the use of analytics to try, you know, the industrialisation of division, the industrialisation mm. of hatred, using online media as a kind of um, a, a toolkit, if you like, um, to mass produce kind of memes and messages and so on, circulate them widely, target them closely and and try and foment division through the circulation of misinformation and hate speech. So that, that has become a very standard approach now among alt-right groups in particular. Mm, very, very interesting and, and also uh, rather horrifying, but uh, that yeah, it's very interesting the way you've put it. Part of the process of industrialising hate is mainstreaming it or normalizing it. And I want to quote you back to yourself because I'd like you to comment on this. It took less than a year for a meme concocted to sow racialized division to find its way from an internet bulletin board to a parliamentary vote in a major Western democracy. Talk about this. Because I think it starts with, as you said, 4chan ends up with with Pauline Hanson. Yeah, I I spend quite a bit of time on 4chan as part of my research and I was on 4chan in November last year and I noticed um, or was it the year before, I lose track but but I noticed the circulation of this meme, it's okay to be white and I thought that's that's a brilliant piece of propaganda because it's very hard to argue against but at the same time, um, because why isn't it okay to be right? If you, if you say it's not okay to be white, well what are you saying? Um, but at the same time most um, most people on the left would recognise it as a bit of coded white supremacism that's designed to trigger them. And it has been very effective in triggering them and getting a reaction, so creating this sense of outrage. So in the campaign that I saw on 4chan as it unfolded, and I watched it unfold over several weeks, um, was, was really fascinating in the way it was mobilised. And, you know, there were templates for T-shirts and there were templates for posters and so on. You were meant to go out and poster your local university campus to start triggering social justice warriors. That was the nature of the campaign. So this proposition starts to circulate in the underground, but it bubbles up and it starts to become a mainstream thing. You can see in Australia how Pauline Hanson's One Nation Party, Fraser Anning and other figures have started paying close attention to alt-right strategies in the US because they're impressed by their electrical, electoral success and they're impressed by, by Trump's electoral success, which in some ways was kind of obliquely fuelled by um, alt-right ideas and the rise of the alt-right. 
Um, they support him at the time. They don't really now. They're much more sceptical now. But in any case, um, it inspired the Australians, um, the Australian far right. So Pauline Hanson um, decides that, you know, why don't we move a motion in the Australian Parliament saying it's OK to be white? Um, because, you know, mm. who can argue against that? And that gets voted on and, and gets supported. Mm. Um so that's, that's quite remarkable. You know, what starts off as, a, as this little meme, this campaign concocted by just a few people, all of them anonymous, all of them communicating, a lot of back-channel stuff going on in 4chan as well, um, but some of it on the board itself, um, all communicating on the board and producing this material, which then starts to circulate globally and gain some traction and get some mm. electoral you know, oxygen, if mm, you like. Mm. Yeah. yeah, it's really... Really, um, I'm shaking my head here, <laughs> Mark. I can tell you, I'm shaking my head. Um, so, yeah, yeah w- w- one of the things that needs to be said about it and that needs to be said about the campaign generally or the, the campaigns generally is that the content is designed to be highly shareable. And the, the, the alt-right, to give credit where credit is due, have been far, far, far better at creating shareable content to push their agenda than the left ever was. Mm. Um, so the, the memification of ideology and its packaging into those bite-sized chunks and slogans, like it's okay to be white, which are very shareable by people who don't quite realise what the underlining underlying intent is because you know under underneath that statement is another meme which is that the white race is in decline right so therefore we have to fight back and we have to fight back by saying oh it's okay to be white actually because these people are the implied premises that these people are saying it's not okay to be white they're attacking us and we're in decline mm. um, so you can see the white supremacism behind it if you understand what's going on but a lot of people don't see that, so they share the content. Mm, mm. Um, so there's a lot of really shareable content out there that has deeply coded, racialized meanings yes. that people aren't quite aware of. Look, it, it, and they're putting them up on their Facebook pages without quite realizing what they're doing. And, and mm. for those on 4chan and so on, this is a huge joke. Mm. Um, it's hilariously funny for those to see how far these memes can go, um, to see how they can be innocently sometimes um, or semi-knowingly um, circulated by people. So that's that's part of the wit and humour of it for those on the alt-right, because those on the alt-right are, uh, see themselves as kind of court jesters, if you like, stirring things up. So they find a lot of things funny that the rest of us might find repugnant. Mm. In your essay, you argue that this industrialization of hate exploits two revolutions, one economic and one technological. Tell us about these two revolutions, and you'll probably have to do this very briefly, I think, but two important things that you talked about. Yeah, so the technological revolution is, is obviously the internet, where people can put stuff up, you know, and you can circulate ideas, you can create things. So all the old gatekeepers, the traditional editors and publishers and all that, you can go around them now. You don't have to talk to a journalist to get your idea out there in public now. You, if you're creative enough, you can memify it and you can get it out there and get it circulating widely like the, the millions of shares that you talked about with the Fraser and Group earlier on. Um, mainstream media didn't even see that stuff um, until it was reported belatedly. Mm. Um, 
The other revolution, the economic revolution, is interesting because it's, it's kind of complicated because, you know, just to put it simply, what we've seen over the last 20, 30 years is a kind of de-industrialisation of, of traditional blue-collar jobs um, and, and the creation of a huge pool of surplus labour, a lot of it young men, a lot of them feeling like they've been left out. Um, a lot of people in regional areas in Australia, regional Queensland, feeling like they've been left out of the equation, that they've missed out on the jobs and the economic growth and so on. And at the same time as that, you get this sort of um, this sense in which the government no longer plays the same role in looking after people as it once did. So you kind of get this bit of perfect storm effect happening where the economic ground's being pulled out from underneath people at the same time as new modes of communication enable them to express their anger in, in new ways and to find new scapegoats um, for, their sense of, for their sense of loss, if you like. Mark, there's so much more I could ask you and talk to you about, but I, I'm, I'm afraid we're running out of a little, little bit out of time. But you, you, you end your essay, and look, this is a, a really big question, but you end your essay with a, with a question. It says, what to, what, what to defend? And it's a big question, requires a big answer, but as you know, we're a program about communication. So what should we defend in the context of communication? What interests me about... Um digital platforms is this, is this idea of civility. So what, what is civility? How do we disagree with each other? Because civility is not about agreeing with each other all the time. That would be impossible and also probably quite boring um, and, and not very productive democratically either. But the question is, how do we disagree with each other? So do we disagree with each other in reasonable ways? Do we disagree with each other, even perhaps sometimes a little bit angrily and losing our temper at each other? Or do we disagree with each other by hating each other? So that question around civility and trying to think of ways and trying to create ways and create opportunities to repair some of those divides... That work is really hard to do in a climate where there are people weaponising hatred and promoting hatred as a political tool to further their own political agenda. Um, but nevertheless, I think that we need to have a civic conversation about civility and about what it means to disagree and how we can disagree um, in ways that are more productive if you like, than the ways that we're disagreeing now, because the ways we're disagreeing now are, are really divisive and destructive and don't bode well, I don't think, for the longer-term health of the democratic culture that you know, sustains countries like this. Mark, thank you very much for being on Communication Mixdown. It's been really very interesting, more than interesting and fascinating, actually, to, to, to talk to you and also to read your essay. And uh, I wish you all the best with your work and with your writing and research. Oh, thank you, and thank you, everyone, for listening. I've been speaking with Mark Davis. He's from the School of Culture and Communication at the University of Melbourne, and we've been talking about some of his ideas in his latest publication, an essay entitled Network Hatred, New Technology and the Rise of the Right. It's in the Griffith Review, number 64, and an extract has been published in The Conversation, and links to that essay will be provided on the 3CR Communication Mixdown website. That's all for this week. We're here again next Monday. Don't forget Radiothon, which is coming up on June the 3rd. So dig deep, make a donation, and keep 3CR on the air for another year. Let's go out with a track from Aaron Neville 
And it's a song about having strength to fight on in the face of all kinds of social and cultural diversity. Not diversity, adversity. Mr. Please, cause I must be hurt 